Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Ana Rasquat Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. In this episode, Aaron T. Beck, President Emeritus of the Beck Institute for Cognitive Behavior Therapy and Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania, talks about his life and career with his daughter, Judith S. Beck, President of the Beck Institute and Clinical Associate Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. He tells her how he went from having no interest in psychiatry to creating cognitive behavior therapy. This method, initially developed for patients with depression and anxiety, challenges the subject to question his own negative beliefs, which act as prisms and cause distortions in the way events are perceived. Later, research showed that cognitive behavior therapy was also effective in the treatment of schizophrenia. In the future, Aaron Tebeck says, psychotherapy must be firmly rooted in scientific evidence. I'm Judith Beck, and today I'm interviewing my father, Dr. Aaron Beck. We are respectively the University Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry, and I'm a clinical associate professor. We're both at the University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine. And my father is the President Emeritus, and I am the president of the Beck Institute for Cognitive Behavior Therapy in Philadelphia. And we have a number of questions that span your career's work. How did you get into psychiatry? Well, you know, that's the story of a big flip-flop. When I was in medical school, I was really turned off by psychiatry. The um, chairman of psychiatry at that time uh, had been a student of Kreplin, and um, he saw psychiatric patients as falling into one of two categories. Either they were psychotic or they had psychopathic personality disorder psychopathic personalities, what he called that, and neither were treatable. Uh, so that wasn't a very favorable introduction to somebody who wanted to actually help people. And then there was, I believe, one psychoanalyst on the staff who did some teaching, and the way he talked was so esoteric I really could not understand him. So when it came time for me to write an essay as part of my clinical clerkship on uh, psychiatric patient, I really wasn't able to do it, and I had some kind of a mental block. So one of my friends, Marty Gordon, actually helped me to write the paper. So I then went through my internship, and I really could not see much value to psychiatry, at least the way it was uh, presented in those days. But I was very much interested in neurology, and the thing that attracted to me about neurology was, in a sense, it was so scientific you could locate a very precise area in the brain which could account for a whole multitude of neurological symptoms. And I found that very interesting and very engaging. And so I decided to do my uh, residency in neurology. And I had two years of neurology and it worked out very nicely. And I was planning to have a whole career as a neurologist, maybe do some teaching and some research as well as clinical practice. Then the chief of neuropsychiatry decided that all neurology residents should take a six-month rotation through psychiatry. And I fought it, but he said, well, you have to do it. And the reason was that they were short of 
uh, psychiatric residence at the time. So I said, okay. So I, I did my six months, and I felt, geez, I've invested the whole six months here, and I, I really don't have any kind of grip as to what psychiatry is about or what, definitely what it has to offer. I remember at times I would be uh, in a, doing group therapy with a group of psychotic patients, and I really had no idea of what to do with them. They would just be sitting around there. Some would be talking continuously, and the others would be zonked out and uh, so on. But I had uh, several friends there who really were very um, involved, very passionate about psychiatry. So I went by them, and they said, well, why don't you take another six months? So instead of going back to neurology, I spent another six months. And at the end of that time, I decided, well, maybe I'll go back to neurology. I, I just don't dig psychiatry. And one of my friends, good friends, said, you know, your big reason the reason you can't really understand what's going on is you haven't been analyzed. And I said, well, what does that have to do with it? And said, well, you know, you have these kind of personality problems, and when you're with these psychiatric patients, they stir up all kinds of unconscious conflicts, and that's why psychiatry is so aversive to you, uh, because you're, it is bubbling all over, and you get into all your defenses, and the defenses prevent you from really understanding what's going on. So I said, well... You know, as long as I've invested six months, I'll take a leave of absence from uh, neurology and uh, I'll try to find out more about psychoanalysis. So I then uh, went to the Austin Riggs Center in, uh, in Stockbridge, Mass. And um, I did not get analyzed there, but there was kind of an analytic atmosphere. And it began to dawn on me that psychoanalysis really did have the answer, not only to neuroses, but to all kinds of human problems, war and peace, and even medical problems like cancer could be due to some kind of psychodynamic conflict that people had. So when I came to Philadelphia, I decided to get analyzed. And um, I went through my whole analysis. And at the end of the analysis, I thought, well, psychoanalysis is really okay. And it really does have an awful lot of answers. Uh, but I didn't like the psychoanalytic establishment. And so um, I thought they were very arbitrary and they were very ritualistic. And uh, it was a little bit like, like a religion. And in fact, I applied f uh, for accreditation by uh, the American Psychoanalytic Society, having already gotten my credentials as an analyst. And I got turned down twice, and the first time was because I hadn't been analyzed long enough. I'd been only analyzed for two years, and they didn't like that. And then I had had four cases in analysis, but they all got better within a year. And they thought that I really was not really imbued with the whole psychoanalytic ethos, so they turned me down a second time. And so, um, anyhow... So I, I still stayed in the uh, field of psychoanalytic therapy for a while. But, uh, but anyhow, that was my transition from uh, neurology to psychiatry. And they still probably have me uh, the books in Boston as being on a leave of absence. How did you move from psychiatry to cognitive therapy? 
Well, I moved from being a committed psychoanalyst to being an uncommitted psychoanalyst to being something nebulous to being a cognitive therapist. So there was a series of stages. And basically, I, it was due to a number of some very surprising incidents that took place. So when I uh, finished my analysis... This was in the um, late 50s you're talking about? Uh, yes, in the very late 50s, I had finished my analysis, and I was interested in depression for a couple of reasons. One is uh, I had a lot of patients who were depressed, mm -hmm. and so I was interested in, in just being able to treat them as well as I could. And secondly, I was very much interested in evaluating uh, the whole psychoanalytic notion of depression. And it's at that particular time, there were two schools of thought in psychology. Uh, one believed in psychoanalysis, and the more academically oriented uh, psychologists are really quite skeptical about psychoanalysis. So I thought that if I could do some good solid research on some of the psychoanalytic hypotheses, that this could help to persuade the uh, very skeptical academic psychologist that there was something to it. The psychoanalyst, psychoanalysts didn't need any persuasion. Uh, they already were uh, committed. It just reminded me of a story one of my friends told me that um, he had done some... Um, tests of psychoanalytic theory, and um, it turned out that Freud's notion, according to his testing, was correct. And he thought, he said, you know, should I write to Dr. Freud and um, tell him that I've now confirmed one of his theories? And um, uh, he then uh, he, he asked one of his friends about this, and the friend said, well, Telling Freud this would be like telling the Pope that you now have evidence in the existence of the Trinity. <laughs> and so uh, and so anyhow. But I, I was not deterred by this, and I, I thought it would be really very useful for society to be able to have some confirmation of the psychoanalytic theory. Now, depression was a very good topic to research, and the reason for this is that the theory was very clear-cut. According to psychoanalytic theory, people have a lot of hostility for some reason or another, but the hostility is not acceptable to them. And so they repress the hostility. And when it gets repressed, it runs against this barrier of defense mechanisms, and it then gets deflected inwardly, something that we call the theory of retroflected hostility. And when the hostility gets reflected inwardly, it then is manifested in a whole series of um, uh, symptoms. And one of the symptoms, obviously, is that the person is very self-critical. They feel very bad about themselves. And even in the more ultimate uh, phase, they might even become suicidal and want to commit suicide. And this is all due to hostility against the self. And it made very good sense clinically, but the big problem was there was no independent evidence to support this. And so I thought that I would do some research to try to support it. And where to look for support becomes the question. Well, it occurred to me that 
if I could look at the dreams of my depressed patients and compare these with the dreams of non-depressed patients, I could look for the evidence of a hostility in the dreams, and I could then get into the unconscious. As you know, uh, dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. So I worked with a psychology graduate student by the name of Marvin Hervich. We prepared a manual for grading the um, uh, hostility in the dreams, and we went through the usual uh, scientific comparisons and statistical analyses and so on, looked at the dreams of the depressed patients, and after we did all the analyses, to my surprise, that was surprise number one, the um, dreams of the depressed patients showed less hostility than the dreams of the non-depressed patients. And so this was really a puzzle, and it would seem to not really support uh, the hypothesis, but that didn't seem to be possible, so we started to look for other explanations. Then we, when we looked at the dreams again, we saw that there was a peculiar feature of the dreams of the depressed patients, and that was that the de depressed patient in the dreams was always the subject of some unpleasant occurrence, uh, that they would be rejected, uh, be abandoned, depreciated, uh, uh, desolated, diseased, whatever. Uh, and this seemed to be a current that ran through all of the uh, dreams of the depressed patients. Uh, one of the patients, for example, would have a dream of going to a formal dance and uh, would discover that she only had shoes for the left foot. Or somebody would be in a desert and would put a, a nickel in a Coke machine in the desert and all that would happen, they'd get fizz. So Marvin and I talked about this and then the light bulb flashed in my mind and we thought, well, there's still the unconscious hostility but the way it's showing up in the dreams is that the patient has a need to suffer and the need to suffer is then being expressed in these negative dreams. And so we called this the masochistic dreams. And uh, we published a paper in 1959 on masochistic dreams in depressed patients. And so it looked here as though I did have some validation of the psychoanalytic theory. However, I did want to get some independent confirmation of um, the... Um, the whole masochistic theory. So we did several other studies um, which should show that the depressed patients have a need to suffer. But when we did these studies, they were nonverbal studies, experimental studies of various types, that far from having a need to suffer, the depressed patients would show a need for being reassured, for getting affection, uh, for getting praise, and so on. And so if there was any motivation, it seemed from these other studies that the motivation was not to suffer, but to get positive reinforcement of some type. And so this was the second surprise. So when I then started to rethink this, it occurred to me that maybe I should take the dreams at the face value. And instead of seeing the dreams as being motivated uh, by uh, some unconscious drive, I could see the dreams as simply a representation of the way the patient perceives himself or herself 
and the way they perceive their experiences, and that this could be the rock bottom. And so I started to look around, and I, I saw that in the literature there was some work done on what was called cognition. And so I started to think, well, maybe there are certain thinking processes that are involved, and the thinking processes in the depressed patient take a negative turn. And so that was the experimental work that I did. And then I went on and did some more clinical work. And then how did you develop the theory and therapy of depression? Okay, so, so over here now we have the beginnings of my theory of depression because I'm already starting to think that uh, depression is related to cognitive processes but that was only one piece of the action. The other piece of the action was based on the clinical work that I was doing. So I was seeing patients two or three, four times a week, and they're on the couch and free associating. And then one time I had an unusual experience. Uh, for me, it was unusual. And then uh, one of the women patients that I was seeing started to regale me with all kinds of stories about um, his sexual escapades, and so on. And she continued on through the entire session doing all that. And at the end of the session, I asked her, now, how do you feel? And she said, well, doctor, I, I feel quite anxious. And so I gave her a good psychoanalytic formulation, and I said, well, you see, the big problem is in talking about sex, it triggers anxiety because you consider that sex is somehow unacceptable, and um, it then triggers anxiety and some kind of fear of disapproval from me or from society, maybe from your parents. And she said, yes, doctor, that makes very good sense. Uh, but, and I, I said, well, what's the but? Thinking she was going to show a resistance now. And she said, well, actually, what I was really thinking about was that I was boring you. And I said, what? And I said, well, how many times did you have that thought? And she said, well, I was thinking this all through the session. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. Uh, do you ever have these thoughts any other times? And she says, well, I always have it, and I'm always anxious that I'm boring people. So then another light went off in my head, and I started to think, this seems to be totally contradictory to the way I was thinking. Because what she is doing is she's reporting having some thoughts that don't fit into my theory. And it's these thoughts themselves that seem to be stirring up the anxiety, not the, uh, the sexual material, but it's these thoughts. And the thoughts have to do with self-critical thoughts. So then I, uh, I started to ask other patients during the session what thoughts they were having during the session, and it turned out that they were having same type of negative self-deprecatory thoughts. And after having seen this in a number of patients, it occurred to me that there's a whole stream of kind of pre-conscious thinking that goes on that people don't generally report to the analyst, or at least they weren't reporting it to me, and that these thoughts that they were having had to do with some kind of an internal communication system, not the kind of things that one reports to other people, 
but the kind of automatic thoughts that one has, such as when you're driving, you have an automatic thought, there's a bump in the road, I'll steer around it. Uh, th th these thoughts happen automatically and they're uh, not only very quick, uh, but they go away very quickly and people don't pay too much attention to them. But even though they don't pay much attention to them, they can trigger all kinds of emotions, anger, euphoria, uh, sadness, and so on. So now I was getting another piece of material from my patients. And at that point, and this has to do with the therapy part, at that point I decided that instead of having them on the couch, I would sit my patients up and um, we would uh, kind of focus on things in general, but also on automatic thoughts. So for example, one of the women that I was treating at the time, uh, she actually was coming in for the first interview, uh, and she had told me that she was really depressed and hopeless. Uh, and the reason for that, her husband had just gone off to jail and she didn't have any money. She had some children to support. And uh, she then said, can you help me? And I said, well, we'll work together and the two of us will help you with the problem. And I then saw a shadow go across her face and I went on to another question. And then I came back and I said, you know, you, you look kind of sad when I made that comment that we'll work together on this. And I said, uh, the key cognitive therapy question, which is what was going through your mind just then? And she said, well, I just thought you were telling me you weren't going to help me. And I said, well, great to me, this is a distortion. And so now first I discovered there were automatic thoughts and this was like the thought that she had, the flash thought I wasn't going to help her, but also was a misinterpretation. And so as I collected more material, I found that these patients were misinterpreting what I had to tell them quite a bit. And eventually I noted that the misinterpretations fell into a lot of categories. One was called selective abstraction, one I gave that name to, where they would take one little element and then... Uh, and then see everything through just that one little element, like one little mistake uh, which seemed to them to represent everything. Related to that was overgeneralization, and then I noticed they tended to have dichotomous thinking, that everything was either good or bad, up or down, and so on. And so I started to see that there were a whole series of cognitive distortions that were taking place, particularly in patients who were depressed, now I put everything together. So from my research work, I was getting the idea that patients, depressed patients had a negative representation of the self, as indicated in the dreams. And then I saw that they were having cognitive distortions. And so I got the notion that people had negative beliefs, and the negative beliefs would act as a kind of prism, and it would block out positive things and only allow in negative things, and it was also a warped prism so that the uh, interpretations that people would make of what was going on were um, uh, distorted. So now we have the representations and we have the distortions and then the question is what do you do about it? Well at that particular time I became aware of the work of Albert Ellis and Ellis had actually come before me in terms of seeing the relationship between uh, 
people's thinking and their affect or their thinking and their behavior. So he had already written a book on this and he had developed a therapy uh, which he called rational motive therapy. Um, and so I borrowed some of his thoughts, some of Ellis's techniques, and I would have people now start to examine their thinking, not challenge them, which was Ellis's term, but to start to explore, investigate, evaluate their automatic thoughts. And we would do this in a variety of ways. One is if a person had a, a negative thought such as, my wife doesn't love me because she ran off without saying goodbye. So we'd say, uh, first of all, um, uh, is this the only time she's done this or does she do this a lot? Uh, second, uh, that's selective abstraction. Uh, are you making some general statement, this is overgeneralization and so on? And then we'd say, now is there some alternative explanation? Or does it logically follow that the reason she uh, went off is because she didn't care for you? A whole variety of techniques. Now, this is what happened, and this was my next surprise, is when I started to have people looking at their automatic thoughts, they started to get better. And while I could have patients doing analytic therapy with me for two, three years, after about 10 or 12 sessions, the patient would say, well, doctor, you've helped me a lot. Bye-bye. <laughs> and my caseload shrunk. <laughs> and pretty soon I was down to very few patients. And at that point, uh, the chairman of my department, Mickey Stunkin, said, well, Tim, you don't seem to be doing so well in private practice. Why don't you come full-time to the university? And that's how I then got going on a full academic career where I did research and some clinical practice and teaching. And that was the uh, birth of cognitive therapy. Depression. But then you put cognitive therapy uh, of depression to the test and you were involved in an outcome study. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Okay, so now I'm doing academic work and um, I'm still doing some research and I set up... Uh, little organization, um, which we called the Mood Clinic. What I wanted to do was to um, do further research on my cognitive model of depression, which I had developed at, at that particular time. Um, and I wanted to do research, but in order to do research, I had to get patients. In order to get patients, I had to offer them something. Um, and so uh, we had to offer them therapy. But in order to offer them therapy, I had to have therapists. So I hooked up with the residency training people, and I said, well, send your residents over, and I'll teach them a new type of therapy. This is at the University of Pennsylvania. At the University of Pennsylvania. So we had the three things were all at once. I was doing able to do research. I did service and training. And then one day, the, uh, one of the residents uh, by the name of John Rush said, well, Tim, I think you've... Uh, got something there with this cognitive therapy. I'd already given it the name cognitive therapy based on the fact that we're dealing with cognitions. He said, you know, you developed a good therapy, but nobody's ever going to believe it unless you do a clinical trial. So I said, well, you know, so they won't believe it. Uh, I'm not interested at this point in spreading it. I'm just interested in doing the research. He said, yes, but it's a very good therapy and you really should be able to disseminate this. So he said, okay, but I'm not going to do a clinical trial. So he said, I'll tell you what, 
why don't you train the residents in cognitive therapy and I'll do the clinical trial. I'll, I'll do the research part. And, and he did that. And that actually was the first uh, clinical trial using psychotherapy for, specifically for depression, randomized controlled study. And what we did is we compared uh, cognitive therapy with amipramine. And depending upon you hand, the way you manipulate the statistics, you could say cognitive therapy did just as well, or you could say cognitive therapy did better, but that was kind of a complicated thing. The patient was just in treatment for 12 weeks, and uh, both groups did get better in 12 weeks. And then Marika Kovacs did a follow-up study, uh, I think a year later, and it turned out the cognitive therapy people still maintained their improvement. And, uh, the drug-treated people didn't do quite as well. And I know there's been some recent research in cognitive therapy for even very severe depression. Can you tell us a little bit about that research? The general thinking in the field is that um, depression uh, is, is best treated, uh, in, at least in the mild and moderate stages, either with drugs or with uh, some kind of therapy, interpersonal therapy or cognitive therapy. But for the severe depressives, you need to have um, pharmacotherapy. So that's, that's the general belief. However, a number of studies, some by, um, uh, mostly by Rob DeRubis, who's at the University of Pennsylvania, have shown in a number of studies that even the severe depressives will respond to cognitive therapy without the use of drugs. However, as with anything else, the cognitive therapy has to be adapted to the particular patient problems. So when a patient is in severe depression, you can't necessarily start with a cognitive restructuring, such as what are the alternative explanations, uh, does it logically follow, and so on. Uh, what they have to do is they have to get activated. They're in a state of torpor. Uh, basically, and, you, and by getting them activated, then you can help to neutralize their negative beliefs about themselves, such as, I'm useless, worthless, I'm, I'm never going to get better, and things are only going to get worse, and so on. And so um, this is something that uh, we, I described in a, a book that I wrote with a couple of other authors several years ago called Cognitive Therapy of Depression. So we use what's called behavioral activation, and that consists of giving the patient a whole series of activities and have them rate the activities. Um, and so many of them will have the attitude, well, okay, so it was very hard for me to make a phone call, uh, but I followed your advice and I made a phone call. Uh, but what does that matter? No, anybody can make a phone call. And then you say, no, but that's a mastery experience because for you... Making a phone call is very difficult. And so what you have is a good mastery experience. So you have to rate this as a mastery experience. And then the other thing is we would have them um, note down anything that they did that was pleasurable. Ordinarily, if you ask a highly depressed patient if they had any pleasurable experiences during the week, they will say uh, no. But as it happens, if they go hour by hour, they do have pleasurable experiences, but they don't remember them. And so what we try to do is to get this really indented into their minds. 
that they are having pleasurable experiences and that life is not as unpleasant as it seems. And so that was really how we developed the corpus of depression. What formulations have you made of the development of depression, that is, the longitudinal cognitive model of depression? Oh, yeah. So, so that's something that I've struggled with for a long time and has to do with the whole idea of the blue gene. And so I'll just tell you how the blue genes get into it. So way back in the early 60s, when I started a whole research program on depression, I was very much interested in uh, what's the longitudinal course of depression. As it happens, in those days, uh, the whole study of depression was virgin territory. There were practically no psychological studies going on in depression, so there were an awful lot of questions that would be in my mind. And uh, there were no answers. Uh, kind of the prevailing notion was a person had some kind of unpleasant event that would happen, and then they'd get depressed. But of course, people have a lot of unpleasant events and they don't necessarily get depressed. So the question is, do people have a certain vulnerability to depression? Is there a diathesis for depression as there is for other disorders? So we did a study of um, quite a large number of patients who were severely depressed, moderately depressed, or non-depressed. And we took some case histories. This was all retrospective, although later on prospective studies were done. And this is what we found, that for the severely depressed patients, there was a very high incidence of a loss of a parent in childhood. The um, parental loss was quite high in those days, uh, much higher than nowadays, because a lot of our patients had lost a parent as a result of World War I or, or as a result of the influenza epidemic. So there was a relatively high rate of uh, parental loss. Now, the parental loss occurred significantly only in the severely depressed patients not so much in the moderately depressed patients and minimally uh, in the non-depressed patients. So then we could get a nice formulation. People become vulnerable because they lose a parent in childhood. Then they have some unpleasant event which seems to be consistent with the early loss, dealing with separation or abandonment or loss of some type. It could be a loss of status in some cases. And then they get depressed. But at this point, we didn't know the second part of the equation, which is the uh, loss in adulthood. And so one of my uh, doctoral students, uh, by the name of Bridge Sethi, did a study, and he showed that the um, parental loss was also paralleled by a similar loss in adulthood. So there is some correlation between childhood loss and adult loss. So that was neat. This was a good thing, and it was published, and uh, this then becomes part of the lore, that uh, childhood trauma can predispose people to bad things happening later on, becoming depressed. But there was one thing that bothered me, and the thing that bothered me is not everybody who has a childhood loss and has an adulthood loss, and the two of them go together, get depressed. So I thought, well, maybe there's something 
constitutionally that makes some people much more vulnerable to trauma than other people. And I had to wait a long time. I think this paper was published around 1961 or 62. And around the year 2000, a group headed by Caspi, who was, um, uh, worked at the Institute in, uh, Institute of Psychiatry, I believe, in London, showed that people who had a variant of the serotonin transporter gene, what's called the short form of the gene, and had childhood trauma, uh, were much more likely to become depressed than people who did not have this gene, which I call the blue gene. So if they did not have the blue gene, they didn't get depressed. If they had the blue gene but did not have childhood trauma, they did not get depressed. But if they had the blue gene and the childhood trauma, then they did get depressed. Now, I could say that there's a lot of controversy about uh, the, uh, whether these genetic findings hold. In some cases they hold, in some cases they don't hold, and, um, and so on. Personally, I do believe that there is something to it, but depending upon the nature of the sample, uh, you may or may not uh, show this genetic influence. However, what does that have to do with cognitive therapy or the cognitive model? Well, this is what it has to do. If people have this blue gene, the serotonin short form, children have this, and they're subjected to, if they then receive certain uh, psychological manipulations, it's shown that they already at that age have a negative cognitive bias. That is, they're much more likely to see at a, at a pre-conscious level, at a sub-threshold level, uh, negative faces uh, than happy faces, and at a much lower level than people who, uh, uh, who do not have the gene. So already there seems to be some cognitive predisposition which is represented in a uh, negative cognitive bias. And when these children are followed, they're much more likely to, ones, to be the ones that develop depressive symptoms later on. In addition to that, and I'll be coming to this later, uh, I hope, is that they also show negative attitudes. Uh, there's a scale that we uh, developed which is called the dysfunctional attitude scale. It's been developed for children. Um, and this has a lot of negative attitudes in the, uh, in the scale. And if they have the blue gene and they have the negative bias, they also are more likely to have the negative attitudes and they're more likely then to have get depressive symptoms later on if they're subjected to particular types of stress. So anyhow, so this now pulls together observations that we made many decades earlier, and we now get kind of a biological um, uh, explanation for it and kind of a, uh, a neurobiological, namely the negative cognitive bias now is, is demonstrated to be part of the whole picture. So we now have a much more complete picture of um, how, de how depression develops, and it now includes then the biological as well as the psychological. Now, some depressed patients become suicidal. 
Can you describe the various investigations into suicide behavior? The suicide studies, to my mind, are the most elegant studies that I've done because they were done in a very specific sequence. It's the only group of studies that I had planned beforehand and extended over many decades uh, and uh, then came to fairly good results. So when I first started my suicide work, uh, there was very little in the literature that cast any light as to what happens with suicidal people and very little bit very little on how to treat them. Um, However, in my my work with depressed patients, I did make the following observations, that if they were suicidal, they had a very high level of hopelessness. They would see the future as something painful and unending and unendurable, uh, just extending totally into the future. So I made the observation that there was a connection between their depression, their hopelessness, and even if they weren't very depressed, if they were high in hopelessness, even if their major diagnosis might have been anxiety, if they were high in hopelessness, they were far more likely to be suicidal. So I then embarked on a program. First of all, was classification. I set up a classification system and then a system for evaluation, evaluation of the uh, uh, suicide, and then validation of the uh, suicidal uh, instruments that I had developed, then prediction of future suicides, and finally treatment. So the classification came about like this. The uh, NIMH, uh, National Institute of Mental Health, uh, had a task force on classification of suicide. At that particular time, all types of suicidal behavior were kind of lumped together. People who thought about suicide uh, were lumped together with people who actually attempted suicide, and they were lumped together sometimes with people who actually uh, killed themselves. And so we set up a classification system. We talked about suicide ideators, people who think about it and have a wish to do it. Um, People who attempt suicide, we call the attempters, so the ideators, the attempters, and people who completed suicide are the completers. So then we have the classification system. But there was no way at that point of assessing the degree of suicide ideation uh, either people who are just ideators or people who are attempters, and then uh, measuring the degree of suicide ideation of those who had completed suicide, where we'd have to get the information not from the patient, obviously, uh, but we could get the suicide ideation from the family. So the next step was to... So we developed instruments for these three categories. We then found... Uh, that there was a definite correlation um, uh, between the degree of uh, suicide ideation and the likelihood that the person would uh, make a suicide attempt. And the degree of suicide ideation and the attempt is and the likelihood they would make a future attempt. So we then got into prediction. We had the scales that would then predict ultimate suicide or um, suicide attempts. Uh, 
Now, where does the hopelessness come into it? We found that hopelessness correlated with suicide ideation, and it also was a, the best predictor we had at the time of ultimate suicide. So we did a 10-year follow-up on patients who had uh, high suicide ideation and hopelessness, and we found that the hopelessness then was able to predict uh, ultimate suicide. We, I suddenly worked with Amy Wenzel, and we did a 50-year follow-up on these patients, and we found that it was a very good uh, prediction uh, of our, our variables. So here we have um, a good deal of material on prediction, but we don't have anything yet on uh, treatment. And treatment itself is like a quasi-experiment. If you have a hypothesis about the suicide and you attack the hypothesis during the treatment and get good results, then you've got it made. And um, I teamed up, I think, around 19, uh, year 2005, many years later after we had formulated this, when we, when we were able to get funding for a suicide intervention we had a 10th study, uh, a 10th session uh, intervention for people who had attempted suicide. And uh, they had the 10th session intervention of cognitive therapy intervention. And then we followed them for a year <clears throat> after the intervention and had a control group. And as compared to the control group, the uh, reattempts of suicide was about half. So we were able to save about half of the uh, people uh, who would reattempt uh, from actually doing it. So that finally clinched it. So we went step by step over a period of many decades and uh, finally clinched uh, the whole thing. So this last study you uh, have just been talking about was really a landmark study in the field of psychology, psychiatry, suicidology. Um, I believe you did that with Greg Brown. Yes, that was a study by Greg Brown, and it was, it was considered landmark. It was published in the Journal of American Medical Association, which was <clears throat> the only time I had an article published there, because it was considered a landmark and of general interest. So we've been talking a lot about depression, a lot about suicide. When you f first started off with the cognitive model and your cognitive theories, and uh, you developed a treatment for depression, did you ever think that you would, or anyone would ever apply it to a condition such as schizophrenia? Well, back in 1952, I actually published a study of psychotherapy with a patient with schizophrenia. And um, this was a, a young man who had the belief that he was being followed by the G-men, uh, the um, predecessors of the FBI, and he thought that the G-men were following him all around, and particularly in the his workplace where uh, his, his father was working, and he was working for his father. And I developed a very strong therapeutic relationship with him, and I felt the therapeutic relationship had a lot to do with his ultimate improvement. But one of the techniques that I used with him was the following. I said, you, you know, you, you have these G-men following you all around, but how would I know what they they look like if I was, you know, if I wanted to help you, 
maybe in, in some way help you with, with them. And he um, he said, well, I can't exactly tell you, but I just feel that a person is. So I asked him to describe the uh, one of the chi men. And so he came through with a description. He started to look at them, and he would describe them. And each time I would ask him, I'd ask him, to keep looking for them so we'd be able to identify them and see who they were. But as he was able to really focus on them, he did not see them quite the same way. And so he started to discriminate between the G-man and the non-G-man. And the more he was discriminating, the fewer there were. And finally, he was down to just three. And at that point, uh, he thought that in the course of time, uh, the they would disappear. He already was beginning to get the sense that maybe he was misinterpreting uh, what was going on. And so then I wrote that up. And so then a long time elapses and I did no more work uh, in the field. And uh, I did, although I had success with that case, I did really wonder whether cognitive therapy could have any really uh, enduring effect on patients with schizophrenia other than maybe some uh, stabilization and some improvement of but but nothing uh, very drastic and then a group of then I was one time I was at a meeting in Brighton England uh, a meeting of the Royal College of Psychiatrists and I saw a poster there and it said 60 patients treated with, treated successfully with cognotherapy. And I knew nothing about the study. 60 schizophrenic patients. 60 schizophrenic patients, right. It's treated in a, uh, one of the state hospitals in Britain. So I managed to track down the authors, uh, Turkington and Kington, with the two authors. And um, one of the things that intrigued me about this was that they had cited my 1952 paper so then I, I checked in with them, and it turned out that they were using cognitive techniques, with the, uh, particularly with the positive symptoms, with the um, depression, I'm sorry, <laughs> that they used depression techniques uh, with the uh, delusions, the hallucinations, and even with the uh, thinking disorder, but predominantly with the delusions, hallucinations. And they, they would ask questions such as, uh, what is the evidence for your belief? And there are other alternative explanations. And then as far as the hallucinations were concerned, they would ask about beliefs, about the voices, and so on. But within a very easy, gradual, empathetic framework. Uh, and then subsequently, uh, many, several other groups in Britain, almost simultaneously, were using uh, cognitive therapy or what they call cognitive behavior therapy uh, with, the, uh, with their patients. And then ultimately I, I realized how many groups were, uh, in England uh, uh, were using cognitive therapy. And so I invited them all to come to Philadelphia, to come to the Beck Institute. And for the first time this group had actually started talking to each other. And so they developed a group of, um, uh, of uh, cognitive therapy or CBT of schizophrenia researchers. 
However, the one aspect of schizophrenia that they did not tackle very much, though they did somewhat, but they didn't have any manuals for treating this group, and that were the people with negative symptoms. And negative symptoms consist of primarily of kind of social withdrawal, very poor work efficiency, um, uh, uh, general inertia, and so on. And the typical patient with negative symptoms would be sitting at home, uh, smoking and watching television, kind of totally withdrawn from the mainstream of society. Very low-functioning schizophrenia. Very low-functioning, that's yeah. right. They're low-functioning. And the general belief at that time, and still to this day, is that this is all due to certain neurocognitive problems that they have. They have great difficulties in attention and in memory and executive function and cognitive flexibility and so on. They, they simply are not functioning well and uh, they can't concentrate very long on things and so on. And there's actually a very good correlation between this cognitive, neurocognitive dysfunction and the behavior that they show. But that didn't strike me as plausible. There may be a correlation, uh, but I could not see where a difficulty in concentration would necessarily lead to a person withdrawing socially and not being able to do anything at all uh, uh, and not doing anything. So it occurred to me there's a missing link, and the missing link has to do with motivation. The reason they have withdrawn this way, in a sense, wrapped themselves up into a cocoon, is that they've given up. And if they've given up, then they're not motivated to do things. So they might have a hidden capacity that goes way beyond uh, what they're actually showing. So the question is, how do you tap into that hidden capacity? Well, first we had to find out what is behind this loss of motivation. Why are they... Uh, just seemingly complacent uh, about their condition. So we developed a number of scales, and I worked with Paul Grant on this, and one scale was called the Defeatist Attitude Scale, which has to do with performance, performance inhibition, you could say, or performance disability. And there are attitudes there such as, there's no point in trying anything because I'm only going to fail, or failing at one point, uh, failing at one thing is the same thing as failing at a lot of things. So we developed that scale. We, uh, we then did a study, and what we showed was that the defeatist attitudes were a mediating variable between the neurocognitive and the uh, actual performance. That is, if you put into the equation the score on the uh, defeatist attitudes, what it does is it soaks up much more of the variance than does the neurocognitive in terms of performance. So now we see the defeatist attitudes are a very important part of why they're not performing. So how do you explain how the defeatist attitudes get in there? Well, in the history of these uh, people with the negative symptoms, you find that they have always been functioning, or maybe starting in school, functioning at a somewhat lower level than their peer group and their siblings. 
And in the course of time, they have a series of failures, and they feel disappointed in themselves, and their family's disappointed in them. And um, they're also subject to bullying and to depreciation, and they develop a really negative self-image. And uh, piled on that self-image is the attitude is there's no sense in doing anything, no sense in trying because I'm only going to fail. And later on, when they develop their positive sense, delusions and hallucinations, this tends to accentuate their negative attitudes and they become stigmatized and so on. So the negative attitudes about themselves actually grow and then become frozen. And so so that has to do with performance, but we also had a scale in terms of social adjustment and they had negative attitudes about social relations too. Uh, so now we have them frozen in with these negative attitudes about dealing with other people, which then accounts for the social withdrawal, and uh, negative attitudes about performance, which then accounts for their inertia, very poor performance. Well, then the question is, can cognitive therapy do anything for them? Well, negative attitudes, that's the meat and potatoes of cognitive therapy. Now, nothing you like more than negative attitudes, something we call the schemas. Uh, nothing like schema therapy to get at that. And so after we um, had done a series of studies such as this, and I won't go into the details, we then had a very good formulation of what to do about patients with schizophrenia. And at this point, uh, when we had the formulation all, all prepared, and uh, Paul Grant and I and two other people actually wrote a book uh, on uh, this whole topic, um, we then felt prepared uh, to do a, uh, a study. And we checked around with other people, and people said, well, you're never going to be able to get funded because nobody's going to believe that cognitive therapy can help these people. And so I managed to get funding from a variety of smaller sources, and we started a study, and we uh, had 30 patients in the cognitive therapy group and 30 in got treatment as usual. And, um, and so we applied the cognitive therapy techniques of dealing with the negative attitudes, giving people, a lot, giving the patients a lot of positive experiences. Now, I had to draw on what I talked to you earlier about behavioral activation. We had to use a lot of behavioral techniques in order to um, get the patients to see themselves in a different light. And there was nothing that succeeds like success for these patients. And so we would do video games with them, go for walks with them, and show, so on, and get them to, um, in a very subtle way, to have a series of positive experiences which in themselves would neutralize the negative attitudes that they had. And at the end of therapy, we found that the patients in general improved a whole order of magnitude beyond where they were before. Uh, so if the patient had been at home, not doing anything, maybe get them into a supportive living condition, or maybe independent living, and get a part-time job, or a volunteer job, and, and so on, and, and so on. Depending upon what level they started at, they were able to go up to the next level. What ideas do you have regarding the transdiagnostic approach that has become so popular recently? 
Yeah, well, the transdiagnostic approach is interesting, and in a way it has to do with the lumpers and the splitters. Um, but I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, in a sense, um, cognitive therapy has always had a transdiagnostic approach, um, but it's also had a specification approach. And so both things are consistent and let me uh, explain what I mean. Um, first of all, the mind is not split up into certain areas with each area having to do with a particular diagnostic category. Uh, the same mind is operating whether it's schizophrenia or depression or anxiety or obsessive-compulsive disorder and so on. And so with each of the disorders, there's going to be some uh, effect probably on different uh, functions, different brain or mental functions, such as attention and memory and focus uh, and beliefs and motivation and behavior. So any approach has to take into account uh, that all of these functions, or any, any, or many, or all of them, may be affected within a particular diagnostic framework. Now, the generic cognitive model uh, is kind of a template, and given this template, one can look for specific features across any of the disorders and then look at what's actually specific for a given disorder. And many times uh, when I've done a workshop, uh, people would say, well, do I have to learn something new for each of the disorders, uh, or is there some, some easier way of going about it? And my answer to that is that there is this generic cognitive model which runs across all of the disorders, but there's one difference for each of the disorders uh, which can account for the disorder, and that is the meanings that the patients attribute to their experiences. And the meanings have to do with the beliefs that the people have. So the disorders are similar in many ways, but they're differentiated by the specific beliefs that the people have. Now, the first person to deal with this was actually Albert Ellis, and he uh, postulated what he called the ABC of mental disorders. A standing for activating stimulus, B for belief, and C for the consequences. And so if a person is exposed to a particular stimulus, let's say it's an alcoholic, uh, uh, he's in a bar, it stimulates a belief that I have to have a drink, all right? I can't control this, and I have to have it. Um, uh, so the, the activating stimulus is the alcohol smell. The belief is I have to have a drink, and the consequences then is that uh, he uh, has the drink. Now, I expanded that in my own work into the following. We still get the activating stimulus. The activating stimulus, though, is often internal as opposed to uh, external. So it may be an internal 
activating, uh, activating stimulus, such as stomach rumbling. And you think my stomach is rumbling. Um, uh, that might activate the belief that I'm going to uh, get colitis or I'm going to get cancer of the stomach or something of that nature. So it might be a physiological symptom. It can be a physiological symptom. It can be any type of sensation. I have a pain in the back. Uh, and that might trigger the belief uh, that this pain is going to get worse. P any pain is a representation of severe pathology and so on. Uh, if one has an addictive disorder, it could be simply the smell or uh, it could be white powder, uh, which could uh, almost by a reflex action uh, stimulate the desire to take coke, co cocaine and so on. So you get your intubating, uh, you get your internal activating stimulus, or it could be an external activating stimulus, such as a student receives a C on a report card. So then the next is a belief, and the belief would be is in terms of the report card um, that uh, I'm a failure, I'm a total failure, I'm always going to be a failure, I'm going to end up in skid row. This belief. Now, what's important about the beliefs is that they attach meaning to a particular stimulus. So you get your activating stimulus, and then you get your reflex, which is the meaning that's attached to whatever the stimulus uh, is. And then you get a whole sequence after that. And so you might get, uh, in the case of the report card, you get anxiety or sadness. And then finally, the uh, consequence. Uh, in the, in the case of the alcoholic, the consequence, obviously, is he has a drink. In the case of the student who doesn't do well, the consequence is that uh, he gets sad and depressed and withdrawn and won't go to school or whatever. Now, for many years, this was the template that I used. But then it occurred to me that there's something else that's very important, and that's something I called attentional fixation. And this really struck me when I was dealing with panic patients. So now with panic patients, um, the activating stimulus may be something like any kind of somatic sensation or some kind of psychological sensation can be the trigger. And so it could be something like pain in the chest, or it can be a feeling of faintness, or a feeling of depersonalization, anything that seems to be a little bit strange or worrisome to the patient, and it will vary from person to person. Now, what the patients, what happens next is that a particular belief gets activated, and a belief may very well be something such as uh, uh, faintness could be a sign of having a stroke, or it could be a sign of having a heart attack. And so the uh, patient then um, gets the belief, oh, I could be having a heart attack, or I, I could be having a stroke, or I could be dying from this, and the patients actually do feel as though they are dying, as though they are actually having a heart attack. So the imagination starts to play a role in this. And some, a lot of these patients actually have images of these things happening to them. 
had patients who even would have the image of themselves having the heart attack and ending up in a coffin, and they quickly get that image. And so you, you get the stimulus, you get your belief, which gives the meaning, and the meaning then can come out in an imaginal pictorial form and just in a verbal form. And then the important thing is the focus. So the attention that get, gets focused on the stimulus and the more it gets focused on the stimulus, the worse it gets. The more they think of the faint, uh, the, uh, the worse they feel. And then the consequence of that is that they then will go run to the emergency room or they'll call somebody and get reassurance that this isn't happening. Now, through something that the learning theorists call um, uh, reinforcement, positive reinforcement, as long as the patient's go for reassurance, it tends to keep the cycle going. And so the consequence itself, then, the reinforcement or the reassurance that they get uh, tends to prevent them from working through the reality. Now, so the therapy then follows very logically from, um, from this little uh, paradigm. So... Let's just say the, uh, we get the stimulus of the activation might be a pain in the chest, say. And, of course, you, you do want to get medical clearance if you're actually working with such patients. But they get, and most of the time, the pain in the chest may be simply just in the rib cage. And you can reproduce this little pain in the chest. As people get these little pains lots of times, but they're not aware of it unless they're hypersensitive, hypervigilant. So you can get, you can reproduce the pain sometimes by uh, just pressing on the, uh, the chest, and so you, you get give the patients a different explanation for what's going on. The people who feel faint may have something that's called postural hypotension, hypotension, which means their blood pressure drops, and you can get them to um, to stop the faint feeling by squeezing a, a rubber ball, say. Uh, and it isn't just getting the, um, uh, it's not just a question of getting this thing to stop, uh, it's trying to disconfirm this belief that they have. So you disconfirm the belief through cognitive restructuring. Uh, now, another thing is I say they focus on the symptom. So another technique to use is to teach them to focus on something else. When they focus on something else, the panic attack tends to subside or go away. And sometimes if persons in the subway, let's say, say get them to focus on the, uh, uh, on the advertisements over near the roof of the uh, subway. And they say, well, suppose I'm in a classroom and I get, the, um, I get this attack. And I said... Uh, one of the techniques I've used with my people is I told them, uh, review in your own mind the names of the presidents, starting with George Washington. And some of these verbal techniques um, will be enough of a distraction. It removes the focus away from the symptom that they're having onto something else. And when they remove the, the focus, the symptom subsides. Now, this in itself is experiential learning, because it means that if they, just by changing the focus, can relieve this, then it means it cannot be a fatal, life-threatening disease. 
And then the next thing is the anxiety that they feel, and they can deal with that through uh, something we call applied relaxation. Uh, now the consequence is the thing of seeking reassurance. So you try to get the patient to use any one or all of these techniques. You train them with techniques, or you do it in your office, and you demonstrate to them uh, how the techniques work. And you try to get them not to go to the emergency room or not to call up the doctor. And this then uh, removes the, uh, the reinforcement that they were getting. So, so that's where you can use this template um, uh, for anxiety. But what's specific then about the anxiety is the belief, the belief that they have an immediate life-threatening condition. But then there are other conditions that are not immediately life-threatening, such as back pain. So a, a fairly significant proportion of the population are uh, disabled or certainly are very dysphoric because of um, uh, chronic back pain. So they, they start to feel a pain in the back, and then they get the thought, the belief then is the pain in the back this is terrible, it's uncontrollable, uh, I'm not going to be able to do anything. Uh, they then feel sad and then they withdraw. And in these cases, you often have to work with the with total withdrawal that they have and get them not to withdraw because they still can have a capacity to do things. So that can then uh, uh, neutralize the, the idea that this is a disability. And actually, we've done some research on, on this, so that's why I'm uh, uh, talking about that. Um, they often become very self-critical. They think their other belief is, uh, I, I'm just um, an anomaly, uh, and uh, I'm different from everybody else. I'm not going to be able to do things for my family. And they become very self-critical. And so you then can deal with the depressive components. So those are two elements with totally different types of beliefs. Oh, another, another one which fit into the template. The template is there, but the beliefs differ. Another thing is I uh, had a patient once who had, a, uh, had pain in the back, and whenever she had a, a back pain, she had the thought, I've got cancer of the kidney. And she went through all kinds of tests, and she kept going for tests, but um, it wasn't getting her anywhere. And so what I did with her is I said, well, look, you've been going for tests for how many years? And she said, 15, 20 years. Uh, I said, how about if you make an agreement with your doctor that you won't go for tests for about six months and let's see what happens? Well, that's simple kind of intervention actually helped her because when she stopped going to the doctor, it removed this reinforcement that she had. And once the reinforcement got removed, she was able to face reality and she started to see that the back pain was due to back pain and not due to a cancer of the kidney. So anyhow, so that's it. So you can use the um, uh, you can use the general uh, template for every condition, but you have to be able to specify the different meanings that go with each condition.
How does the cognitive model account for comorbidities, for example? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because that uh, comes right from the, the previous question. So let's take depression, anxiety. I mentioned earlier you have lumpers and splitters. Back in the, the late 20s, 28 and 29, there was uh, a big debate going on in Britain. Uh, one school of thought believed that depression and anxiety were lumped together and they were the same, basically the same condition. And the other school believed that depression and anxiety were two separate disorders. Um, now we fast forward to the present. And there's been a, um, a big move on to lumping um, various conditions that have a certain amount of overlap uh, together, and this is called the transdiagnostic approach. Um, and so the various anxiety disorders are now being lumped together by, by some of the investigators as though there's one single anxiety type of thing that applies across the board. And there is this comorbidity between depression and anxiety, um, which uh, also raises questions as to just why this is. Now, first of all, so that's the lumping. First of all, I would say that there is a difference between depression and anxiety. And in our early, in our early work, we had a large sample to deal with. We found that we could split off patients who had depression and no anxiety and anxiety and no depression. But the two often go together. And the question is, well, why do people out of depression and anxiety go together so much? Well, that's because they're dealing with the same thing. Basically, depression and anxiety have to do with either damage to your self-esteem, that is psychological damage, or it has to do with uh, physical damage. Now, in the case of depression, the damage has already occurred, so the person has a negative bias and will see everything in terms of I am uh, uh, I am useless, I am worthless, I am inferior, I'm inadequate, I'm stupid, and so on. This is the way they see themselves and this is the way they interpret various events. They will selectively interpret events according to this negative self-image. Now, with the anxious patients, when there's anxiety there, it's the same thing except it hasn't happened yet. They, know they don't yet see themselves as uh, different from other people, as inadequate, stupid, uh, uh, worthless, and so on. But they interpret future situations as possibly showing that. So a depressed patient in a social situation will think, I'm... I'm out of it. Uh, people um, see that I'm useless and I'm worthless and so on. The anxious patient will think, I'm in this social situation. If I stick my neck out, I may be shown to be worthless, stupid, inadequate, and so on. So they're afraid of something that may happen to them. They have anxiety about what may happen. They're vigilant about what may happen. 
But with a depressed patient, it's already happened, and when they think of the future, they always think of the future in terms of something that would definitely happen. Now, to be a little bit more specific, so you know that uh, people have a tendency to catastrophize, to think of the worst possible thing that could happen. So we did a, a study in which we asked people to have, an Im have images of the worst possible thing that could happen to them in particular situations. So we had depressed people who were high in depression and people who were high in anxiety. Now the people who are high in depression would attribute a very high probability of their, say, ending up on skid row if they uh, had some kind of uh, loss of money or a job problem. You, you give the same scenario to the um, anxious patients and you say, what's the worst thing that can happen if you lose your job or you lose your money? And they also see themselves ending up as skid row. But when you ask the anxious patients, what are the probabilities of this happening? They'll say maybe 40%. If you ask the depressed patients, what's the probability? They say 100%. So the anxious patients still see this as, as a possibility in the future. The depressed patients see this as a certainty. So what you're having then is between depression and anxiety, you're going to have people who may fluctuate from time to time in terms of how much they believe that they are inadequate or how much they believe that they might be shown up to be inadequate. Uh, and so they could have uh, depression and anxiety going on at the same time. Or another way of looking at it is there are just depressive schemas and there are anxious schemas. And the, the two sets of schemas are very close in terms of content. One having to do with the future, the other having to do with the, with the certainty of the present. And since they overlap somewhat, it's not um, uh, surprising that people would have both. So that's why you would get comorbidity there. Now, let's take this transdiagnostic notion of uh, this one big anxiety that manifests itself in panic attacks and um, generalized anxiety disorder, maybe specific phobias. <clears throat> For example, a patient may have, so, a particular patient may have social anxiety, that is, feels anxious in social situations, feel that, uh, say, uh, he's going to get looked down on, he's going to be perceived by other people as awkward and inept and uh, not socially desirable, uh, might have a tunnel phobia, might have panic attacks, might have panics, uh, might have public speaking anxiety. So it's true that a particular person may have any of these things or might have only one of them. Now, if they have any of them, What's the explanation for that? The explanation has to do with one thing, is they feel vulnerable. And they have a very strong belief about vulnerability and that they see themselves as somehow very fragile and therefore subject to a whole lot of different things or, and or they see the outside world as very threatening. 
And so they might have any one of these things if they have a broad scheme or broad belief in terms of vulnerability and a broad belief of a dangerous world. Or it can be then, so that's kind of the lumper type of thing that can happen in nature. But also you can get the specifics. So somebody might have a tunnel phobia or a bridge phobia or a phobia of knives and have nothing else. Then they just have a very specific vulnerability. So you get comorbidity when there's a broad generalization of the vulnerability or you get a specific vulnerability when uh, it just has to do with specific situations. And that's something we call phobias. What's being done in terms of dissemination of cognitive therapy? Well, I'm glad you asked that because dissemination is very important. So one of my concerns has been we write these papers and eventually they might get bound into volumes and gather dust on somebody's shelf <clears throat> or take up some space in people's computers. But it never does anybody any good because it doesn't get out into the community. And particular individuals in the community that I've been most concerned about are the low-income individuals who, by and large, are not getting uh, kind of up-to-date therapy. Um, mostly they're being treated by master's-level uh, therapists who have not already uh, received any uh, uh, any of the evidence-based training uh, when they were in school. And so fortunately, um, we have a contract with the city of Philadelphia, with a subsidiary of the city of Philadelphia, which provides services at the various community mental health centers. And so we have been um, engaged for several years now in training these master's-level therapists in cognitive therapy. And so it breaks down into two types of training, or three types of training. One is we've been doing workshops for them, and we've probably uh, given workshops to well over a thousand, perhaps a couple of thousand uh, of the therapists. And then we've been doing intensive training with weekly tape reviews. They send in their tapes and um, they get the tapes get evaluated, and they're given feedback uh, every week on the tapes. And they uh, originally would get a year's training. We've now doing a study to see if they can reach competency at uh, uh, at six months. And so the, the ta their uh, tapes are rated at the uh, onset of their uh, onset of their training. And then at the end of the training, and about uh, ninety percent uh, reached competency, and about ten percent, uh, and a certain percentage, about ten percent, don't or drop out. And so we've done very, very well in that. Now the third type of training uh, is a web-based training, where they get, they watch for uh, twenty-six weeks. They uh, uh, they watch a computer, computer-based program on cognitive therapy, and we're trying to see how effective that is. So that's one form of training. Now, there also are people, and many of them are, are actually at a doctoral level, 
postdoctoral level who never received any training in the evidence-based treatments while they were in school or they did not receive enough. There's also master's level people, similar to what I was talking about, who are in practice who haven't received training. And so there are several research centers uh, in the U.S. where they can get training, and this is very important. Uh, now, for example, at the, at the um, Beck Institute for Cognitive Therapy, uh, we have a series of monthly workshops which include both the basics and then other workshops have, uh, are advanced. So that we do try to tr teach the, uh, the, the basic uh, tools to people who come to the workshop. And then we have specialty workshops, say, for children or uh, eating disorders, which is very important as a prevention, and um, schizophrenia and so on. But our hope is that the, patient, that the, the therapist will also um, enroll in a year-long or a six-month-long program. We'll get the same type of tape review uh, that we have in the, um, uh, in the community. And so I, I think that's really important. And uh, many of the people who've been through this training program have themselves become trainers and will train other people. And so we've had people from all over the world and what, one of the interesting things um, is that the, the greatest uh, interest actually uh, comes from the Islamic or the Muslim countries where cognitive therapy, for some reason uh, that I don't know, seems to fit better with their culture than certainly psychodynamic therapy does. In any event, uh, we're interested now in not only spreading it out through North America but throughout the world. And, uh, and so far, it's been very successful. And there are uh, some places, such as Australia and um, uh, New Zealand, where cognitive therapy isn't the dominant therapy. It's, from what I hear, it's the only therapy that's uh, being used. And recently, uh, we've set up a... Uh, uh, we're in the process of setting up a program in China. Uh, there's already uh, been a large amount of dissemination uh, um, uh, through Asia, through places like South Korea and Japan and Singapore and Hong Kong. And so uh, it's moving there. But the other problem is this. Nowadays, the insurance companies do tend to favor the evidence-based treatments. And so a lot of people are calling themselves cognitive therapists and we ask, go to workshops and we ask, how many, uh, how many of you actually uh, do a problem list or set an agenda at the beginning? How many give feedback and so on? It turns out that they're not really doing cognitive therapy. Uh, uh, and uh, so the problem comes up when somebody from Keokuk, uh, Iowa, wants a referral. Uh, what do we do about sending them a referral? So to solve this problem, we set up, um, we, we participated with our former students in setting up a, uh, an organization called the Academy of Cognitive Therapy. And the Academy of Cognitive Therapy will then certify uh, therapists. They have to be able to present their credentials. Uh, and, 
And so we're trying to get certified people, not only in North America, but in other countries in the world uh, who will be able to do that. What do you think the future of cognitive therapy is? Well, I guess the big question is what's the future of therapy and what's the future of uh, psychotherapy? So as far as psychotherapy is concerned, I, I think the future is going to really depend on therapies that are, and maybe one therapy in the future, everything will come together, which will be based on science. And by science, I mean the following. There has to be a science of psychopathology, and the science of psychopathology has to be based not only on a whole series of hypotheses, but these hypotheses have to be confirmed. So it has to be an empirically based foundation. Then the therapies have to be cons at least consistent with the theory of psychopathology. And ideally, they should be derivable from the theory, from the evidence-based theory. Then the therapies themselves do have to, not only they have to be derived from the theory, which then gives you the template, as I mentioned earlier, uh, but the therapies themselves have to go through validation. Now, there are also other forms of treatment. There are a variety of biological treatments, not only pharmacotherapy, but there's uh, transcranial magnetic therapy um, and, and so on. Um, so the question is, what therapies are best for individuals? And Rob DeRubis has been doing some work trying to show that certain psychological configurations seem to um, best predict people's response to either pharmacotherapy or to uh, cognitive therapy so that there can be a, a degree of personalization in the future. Uh, but there's another type of personalization, and that has to do with the genes. Now, it may be that people are genetically better constructed to respond to uh, cognitive therapy, or they may be better constructed to uh, respond, say, to pharmacotherapy or to some other type of treatment. We don't know. Uh, it may be that this is just a fad, the idea of uh, uh, what they would call a psychogenomics may be a fad, or there may be something to it. And it may be that some people won't respond to any therapy, uh, although that's a nihilistic point of view. So what's your hope for how cognitive therapy might evolve? Well, uh, I, I think cognitive therapy has evolved, and over the years, what I've done personally is I've tried to incorporate more and more of the findings uh, that have come from various of the psychological disciplines. And so I've been quite influenced, uh, say, by cognitive psychology and social psychology and experimental psychology. Uh, and all of these um, uh, disciplines have findings that are relevant to uh, to what I would consider the general theory. Uh, and so I think as there are new findings in psychology 
uh, it's going to be reflected in an expansion of uh, the theory behind cognitive therapy. Um, as far as the techniques are concerned, a lot of what techniques are used really depend upon what the therapist is comfortable with, what the therapist has learned, and also uh, the responsiveness of the uh, patients. It's probably ideal for the ideal therapist if he has a number of approaches. Um, and so with some patients, for example, uh, that I've treated in the past who are uh, very intellectually oriented and they're very much interested in causation, um, we can achieve a lot of the cognitive restructuring through talking about childhood experiences, let's say, or showing the relationship, not talking about them because talking about them doesn't do any good, but trying to show the relationship between childhood experiences and um, uh, what their particular problems are right now, how the images that they uh, developed in cho as children are now producing the kind of cognitive biases that are uh, going on now. So to get back to your question, how do I see it evolving? I, I see it as uh, using more and more of the research that's going on and then incorporating the research into the whole corpus of cognitive therapy. How does cognitive therapy view the therapeutic relationship? Well, I used to think, well, for many years, even decades, I used to think that the therapeutic relationship was a, a crucial vehicle, crucial part of the, uh, the therapy. And uh, it's a little bit like a surgeon using anesthesia. The anesthesia is essential in order to apply the techniques. Um, way back, I remember having debates with Jerry Frank, who was a big believer in the curative power of the therapeutic relationship itself. Um, I felt at that time, and still do today, that the technical aspects are really crucial, but that the therapeutic relationship might be a, is a, an extremely important facilitator uh, for uh, being able to deliver the particular techniques. But recently, um, there have been a number of different delivery systems that have been discussed, and they also, the different delivery systems, also seem to be uh, effective. Now, the most important work in this area has been done in Britain, and there they, uh, the British... Uh, clinicians uh, will use what's called um, uh, either low-intensity or high-intensity interventions uh, uh, for their patients. Now, low-intensity interventions are used, let's say, for mild or moderate depression. And with low-intensity, there may not be a therapist involved at all uh, the patients may be given bibliotherapy, they might be given uh, computer uh, uh, therapy, uh, they may be um, uh, given instructions about uh, various mental health organizations they can go to for education and so on. Mm -hmm. The high intensity, of course, uh, would be relevant to having a therapeutic alliance. Now, there's also, so that's one 
question is, uh, one point is that therapy can be delivered successfully uh, through uh, methods that do not involve a therapeutic relationship. Although I've been told that even people who get, have one of these computer programs for therapy develop a relationship with the computer or with the therapy, <laughs> with the therapist uh, kind of uh, who's written the, uh, the, the program. <laughs> Uh, so they, they have kind of a remote uh, relationship. Um, okay, now, th th there are two things about the therapeutic relationship itself when it does go on. One is, uh, though originally I felt that the, uh, it was essential for the patient to be warm and empathic, um, and kind of tuned in to the patient's feelings, and that this was really that a warm, empathic, supportive relationship was critical to getting better. I found that after a certain period of time uh, working with patients, there were some patients who did not want this uh, uh, kind of nice bedside manner. What they wanted was they wanted to know what the tools were. They would apply the tools, They'd, they'd come to the sessions. When the session was over, they would be pleased to leave at the end of the session. They would do the homework very thoroughly. They got better very fast. They uh, had no great affection for me. Uh, they were satisfied with the therapist. and They went their own way. And then there were other people for whom the therapeutic relationship was very important, and they would cling at the end of the session. They would make phone calls between sessions. And so I did a research, a little research study, and uh, we, uh, we found that there are two types of people, roughly. There's the autonomous and there's the dependent. And the autonomous people do very well if you just give them the techniques, and they're not interested in anything else. And the uh, dependent people are largely interested in the relationship and you have to squeeze in the techniques as part of the relationship. So anyhow, so I imagine that uh, it may be that the autonomous patients may do better with the other types of delivery systems that I mentioned. Now, there's a big school of thought that uh, believes that the therapeutic alliance is the key thing. But again, getting back to some work done by Darubas, uh, he finds that the therapeutic alliance does not come before the improvement, but comes after the improvement. Or to put it another way, once the patient starts doing the therapeutic techniques and develops certain of the skills and sees that the skills are effective, then the, um, uh, the patient starts to feel that he has a working alliance with the um, uh, with the therapist. So the whole sense of the alliance comes after the patient is actually going through and practicing the techniques. Uh, the other school of thought, which is the dominant one, is you have to have the working alliance first and then the patient will start using the techniques. In any event, uh, it's still an open question and there are some patients who do get better uh, just on the basis of um, the 
the, 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 the various therapeutic factors such as warmth and empathy and so on, they do get better, but the question is, do they stay better? And this is what the research is going to have to show. We believe that the people who've um, learned the therapeutic skills are the ones who are less likely to relapse later on because they will all have these skills and they can keep exercising them for the rest of their lives. So anyhow, that's, that's where things stand with the Therapeutic Alliance. Well, thank you so much for all of the interesting things that you said today. You told a couple of stories that I, even I hadn't heard about. Uh-huh. And, um, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to uh, thank you on behalf of really the psychotherapeutic world for the work that you have done. We get emails constantly at the Beck Institute of how grateful both uh, professionals are and consumers are for the work that you've done. Well, well, thank you for, for the interview. Actually, it's been going down memory lane for me going back many decades in some cases and and your questions have helped me to piece together things that I've thought about but I haven't really put them together before so thank you so much for this opportunity and uh, you're, you've celebrated your 90th birthday this year it yeah, seems that you have the, the mind of, uh, of a much younger person certainly the energy and the work and I know you still work pretty much 24-7 right, well, thank you You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquat Paz. Thanks for listening.